Hello to those listening, and welcome to our podcast on Modeling Minorities. We are Asian American women, friends who met in college, and daughters of immigrants. These are the conversations we're having, or wish we were having, with our husbands, friends, families, and coworkers. Today we have on the show Gino, and Gino was actually introduced to us by just and my mutual friend, um, Eugene, and we went to college with Eugene. So Gino, um, you mentioned that you actually have a different name, your birth name, which is Edwin, mm-hmm. but you go by Gino. This is confusing, right? Because I have like my government name, <laughs> okay. which is Edwin, and like professionally, that's like what I go by. Filipino parents have this thing where like they give their kids nicknames that have nothing to do with their real with their given names. And so in that case, Gino was mine. And growing up, friends and family always called me Gino. And then I got to college and it got difficult to explain the Edwin Gino thing. So it's funny, you can almost see the delineation between like people I've met before college mm. and after college, because yes. if you like put them all in a room. There's the, the people who call me Edwin, the people who call me Gino. I also tend to use Gino, though, in Asian spaces or Filipino spaces. And I don't know if that's like a, a signal of like code switching, which we can totally get mm-hmm. into. Um, but I feel like Gino is the, the name that I want to like have in this space. So love that. Gino is good. We are so excited to have you on for so many reasons. And this is actually our very first time chatting. Jess and I have never met you before, which is yeah. so awesome and exciting because that, that has never happened on the show before. Oh, you've always, um, it's always so someone us- you've known. Or like one of us has known, oh, okay, at least yeah. a little bit. Yep, we, it's yeah. the blind date that we're going on. I, yes. Exactly. So far, so good, though. So, yes. And so exciting because I've been married for a while. You know, I, I need to spice things up. So this is great. <laughs> and if you don't mind, let's just dive right into it. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. So, Gino, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, I'll give you sort of just a little bit and then we can dive in a, l- a little bit more. I am Gino. I live in New York City. I am in my early 30s. I've been here for the last 10, 11 years. I identify as a as the son of Filipino immigrants uh, to the U.S. I moved here when I was 10. I spent my I was born in the Philippines and spent my childhood living there and in the Middle East um, because my parents were expats to a country called Oman um, in the late 80s. And when we moved here, we settled in the great state of New Jersey. I started my career in finance and transitioned to higher education about six years ago. And that's what I'm uh, doing now and just living my best gay-ish, my best-ish gay life in New York City. One thing that I suspect, but I would love your thoughts on this, is in some Asian cultures and countries, homosexuality or LGBTQ plus rights it's not something that a lot of Asian cultures prioritize, would you say? Agree. Agree. Why do you think that is? So for me, right, I, I am Filipino and very much grew up with Filipino values and in the Filipino culture. And that is one and the same with being Roman Catholic. And along with that is just strong pressure of family and, you know, being being a male, even in in Asian culture, you have to be strong. And there's a lot of pride that goes into carrying your name, right? And, and there, I think Asian people or Asian culture as a whole, like we 
are such a prideful culture. And we, we carry that so hard that something like homosexuality, and it can be like fill in the blank, right? Anything that's like not um, of standard or not, you know, not up to par, but it's, it's any, anything that's like fill in the, you can fill in the blank. In this case, homosexuality, it's like, oh, you messed up. Yeah. Yeah. And this also reminds me in a lot of Asian cultures, I'm not saying all of them, but there's this idea like I want to be part of the whole and not individualistic. Mm. And so if someone is different, that goes against the grain and goes against what they know and they're comfortable with. And so somebody having different gender identity or different sexual orientation or even just preferences, right? I think sometimes that's really hard for some people to understand. And maybe this isn't even Asian or not. It's just some people don't like anyone that sticks out or is different. I think that's so true. You know, I have a marketing background. And when you look at countries and characteristics of different cultures, Asian people are very like you said, about the collective versus individualistic. And it's about keeping the the reputation, right? If, if you want to think about like the community, as soon as there's someone who maybe is, a, is, is not falling in line, then the reputation of the community is at stake now. Now, you, now you're messing with the community, you know, because you're right. trying to do your own thing and like live your own life. And in doing that, in just living your own true authentic self, a lot of the times that's seen as defiance or selfishness even. And I think that's something that's really hard for LGBTQ plus folks uh, who are Asian. That's, that's definitely a layer of complexity that's part of their, their queer experience. So then I guess to your, for your own personal journey in that respect, um, are you comfortable telling us about how or when you decided to come out and how did you face all of these pressures, wh- yeah. whether it's religion or, you know, cultural or uh, ethnic? Were you weighing all of those before deciding to make that decision? Yeah. So I grew up very uh, religious, a Roman Catholic home, going to church every Sunday, doing all of the rituals and and all of that, going to uh, Catholic school as a child. When we moved here to the States, uh, like middle school to high school, I was in a Christian youth group. And that's a, a, you know, similar experience probably among many Asians. I'm raising my hand. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we'll, We'll sing some worship songs later because some worship songs, like they slap, like, like, so catchy. So catchy, yes. like the <laughs> Um, They knew what they were doing, those acoustic people. But yeah, so I, I grew up in this, in this like charismatic Christian community and very quickly became a leader, like a youth leader. And it's so funny to think now back to, you know, I would be up on stage at like conferences and retreats and leading praise and worship and like telling everyone, all right, close your eyes and let's pray. Like, it's so funny to think that there was a point in my life where that was like me and all of that just felt so normal. It didn't feel forced. It just felt very real and authentic to me. And it didn't feel like a conflict. It only felt like a conflict when, whenever like homosexuality came up, whenever it was like, God loves us. We're so thankful for everything. He's awesome. 
it felt good to be in that circle. But then when the talks uh, were about like, you know, how we're sinners and we should be, you know, ask for forgiveness, that's when I'd feel like, okay, let me like just pedal back a little bit, you know. Gotta go to the bathroom. Yeah, like I feel very mean. <laughs> I feel very attacked right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but oh, I, so do you know, can I so sorry, yeah. can I interrupt? So did you know then, like when you were in church, you were a leader, yeah. not just you were in church, you were a leader in church. Did you know during that time? Yes. Um <gasps> yeah. Wow. But you know, I like think of I never acted on any of it, you know, any of like my urges or my attraction. Sometimes when a, like a worship leader was up there, like a guy would be like, yo, he's so cute. And he like, loves God. And he's so like, holy. And then, like, He'll be such a great family, man. Yeah. Like, commanding the room. I love that. Yeah, I, I knew. I mean, I knew that I was gay thanks to Aladdin. Uh <laughs> Oh my oh god, tell us about that. Well, <laughs> my, my first my first crush is Aladdin. And I don't know if that's problematic or not because it's a like freaking cartoon. <laughs> it was like not even a human. But um I just my my very first recollection of, of someone that I thought was attractive and made me feel something was Aladdin. And you know, growing up to like beauty pageants are such a big deal in the Philippines, like Miss Universe, we love. And I remember in second and third grade. I was friends with this group of guys, you know, spoiler alert, they are also gay. Turns out we were all just gay and playing at the time and didn't know it, but we loved Miss Universe. Like we'd walk around with like towels in our head, like pretending like we had hair and we'd like do like a catwalk and everything. And, you know, so little things like that. And, and, you know, my dad also would kind of um, reinforce that I wasn't the most masculine kid like if I'd sit cross-legged or my wrist was a little limp or he'd say things like stop doing that or like straighten your you know straighten your walk or your talk or your back so I was getting all of these cues that I wasn't quote-unquote normal right and I felt different so yeah I, I kind of always knew and and then you add this layer of like being a leader in this Christian group and it's almost like I had to do so much suppression and I think that led to me not even acting on crushes that I had. And at the same time, I almost didn't know like what to do or how to. Um, so uh, yeah, when I when I came out, um, it was uh, the the summer in, in between high school and college, and I knew that I was stepping down from this community. I was going away for college, so I could kind of like push restart, you know, push the reset button. No one knew who I was, where I was going. So I, um, yeah, I first came out to my high school friends. And when you come out to your like straight girlfriends at a young age or in high school, a lot of, a lot of them give the reaction of like, oh my God, I've always wanted a gay best friend or like, oh my God, we can go shopping now. So if you are like listening to this, please don't be one of those girls or people who gives that reaction. 
Um, <laughs> like, don't make I it you about were going you. to reinforce it. I thought that you were going to be like, and that was so supportive for me, and that made it easier for me. <laughs> me too, me too. I thought Gina Wait, was you going didn't to say, want to be tokenized, <laughs> right? I thought Gina was going to say, for all the people who haven't come out yet, do it to straight girls. It'll be great. I thought that's where this was headed. They'll buy you lots of clothes. <laughs> no, so quite the opposite. Like, don't make it about you, right? Center it around the person. Yes, but whatever. Peace and love to like my my girlfriends who are very much still my close girlfriends today um so I came out and got those reactions and I went to, to college and that was like a whole new world you know like <laughs> it's like <laughs> I had come out Perfect. like I had left this community full circle to Aladdin like a whole new world and that kind of was my coming out journey um I acknowledged that that was a very fun, lighthearted coming out. I didn't come out to my family until four years later when I finished college. And I had I had told myself that I wanted to tell them like by the end of my you know first year of college. And it just kept getting delayed because it got, it got so, it was hard to tell them. But I finally had no choice but to tell them after college, I lived back at home for a little bit. And before leaving my family home to live in Brooklyn and live that whole life, it's like I knew that I wasn't going to be going back. So I didn't feel right leaving and starting this new chapter of my life without bookending that and letting them know like who their, their kid is. And, you know, surprisingly, my dad was the one who was more accepting and supportive in that moment and for context my dad is also this very like very macho muscle I, I grew up with like a very muscly like athletic dad yeah it was a really big surprise that he was the one that was saying like oh my gosh like you're fine we still love you we've always known we've just been waiting for you and my mom actually was the one who was like asking more questions and was I think a little bit shell-shocked but it's been 10 years since that and my parents and I are fine about it. I've never really been asked about it, though. This is not, it's kind of like a don't ask, don't tell. Like, I know very much that they love me and accept me, but I think it's also very characteristic of Asian families to not know how to talk and process emotions and be vulnerable. So I don't. Oh my gosh. Right? Like, do you feel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so it's very that we don't really talk much about it. Another layer I'll add to this is my brother is also gay, a younger brother. So my brother and I have gotten close over the years. Is that something that we bond over? But you know, it's a, it makes our family interesting. <laughs> um, and you know, if you are listening to this and you're not sure if your parents know, they probably do, girl. You're not hiding anything <laughs> yeah, from your parents. So, Certainly not your mother who birthed you. Yes. So. Asian, girl, Asian moms always know. Okay. Yes. They, always know. <laughs> they know everything. Yes. So if you're waiting for the moment, and that's another thing too with coming out is like everyone's waiting for like the moment, the moment. It's like for me, I was like, okay, after freshman year of college, like it's going to happen. And then it did it. It just kept getting delayed. And I was waiting for the moment. And then when you do it or when I did it, it just, that was it. Like that was what the moment needed to be. And Was it anticlimactic in some ways? Because you'd been building it up for so many years. Yes. And <laughs> my, my coming out story was to my family was it was New Year's Eve. 
it was just my mom and my dad at the time who were at a restaurant and they told me to go meet them. And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. I'm going to move out of the house in like two days and we're in a public place. So like if my mom wants to make a scene, she won't because we're in public and you know, we're Asian and we don't want to be embarrassed to make a scene. Exactly. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> so use those principles against her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were at like their favorite Japanese buffet. So I'm like, Oh, well done. We're like, we can't. Japanese buffet. <laughs> we can't have you like, not come back here. So yeah, it was anticlimactic because I was expecting like people to be crying and this and that. And if anything, I cried the most, not my parents. But when they say like a weight is lifted off your shoulders, that really is what it feels like. That's amazing. Yeah, it must have been so cathartic. Then it, yeah, I, I think it, it gave me permission to just move on and start the life that I wanted to live. And in my mind, I'm like, that is the last time I'm going to have to come out. And yeah. we, I think as, as LGBTQ plus people, we come out every day, but we don't have to say or disclose verbally, right? Like I'm gay. I think we just live our lives and that's our way of coming out. It's a very defining moment in our lives. And it is what either gives us, like, even if it is a bad reaction, you know, coming out, it still gives you permission to just move on and like mm -hmm. do your thing. Yeah. And to be really fully yourself, yeah. right? Like that is the moment where you kind of like own that. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on pride and pride month? Yeah. Pride month is celebrated every June. It's, it's fun. I think in major cities, there's always a big celebration. So in New York city, you know, two years ago, World Pride was celebrated here. It was so fun. So yes, we are, we're in the middle of the month now. What it means to me is it's just the month to feel super affirmed and super seen. I'm sure when June 1 hits, everyone's, you know, inboxes are flooded with like the corporate pride emails. And it's like, we're having a pride sale and all of this and that and rainbows everywhere. And then July 1st comes and it's like, we forget all of a sudden. As an adult celebrating Pride, it, it, there's this like layer of complexity to it that I've experienced and observed. It's super Pride is super important, but I think it it becomes very like sexualized in the gay circle, like gay world. It's a celebration, right? In gay world, we have these things called circuit parties, which I feel like for the average straight person, when they think of like how gay people party, like whatever you're thinking in your head, that is exactly what it is. Shirts off, everyone in a dark, steamy warehouse. There's a DJ, like flashing lights everywhere. You're hot, you're sweaty, you're dancing, like Lady Gaga's just playing. There's Are there a lot of bubbles? There's some bubbles, Are there bubbles? sure. <laughs> Lots of glitter, exactly. glitter everywhere. Yeah, in these spaces, it's very sex positive and sex forward. And I think there's like a party every week. There's always an event going on. And let me just say that just by mentioning that, that does not necessarily mean that I participate or don't participate or condone or don't condone. It's just, that's a fact that I'm sharing. So basically what I'm trying to say is Pride Month is super important. It's a great celebration. I, I don't know if those same people, I don't know if they necessarily acknowledge what had to happen for them to be able to have those parties and the history. Um, and so I think 
maybe that's what I'm trying to say is like, it's fun, but sometimes I'd be looking around and I'm like, I don't know if you like get it. Sometimes people just got to know their history or kind of like acknowledge it. And it's not, it's not always just about the parties, I think is what I'm trying to say. Like pride, pride started as a riot, a protest. It was not walking down Fifth Avenue with pride flags and uh, floats. And I think over years, it's kind of been glamorized and romanticized. I'm really curious, as an Asian gay man moving about the world, what is that experience like? And do you think it's different from other people's experiences? Yes. I will say that being a gay Asian man is tough. I want to frame my perspective and my positionality around being in New York City. And it's tough from a a few standpoints. I think dating maybe is one area that we could dive into first. Dating in general in New York City is tough for anyone, whoever you are and however you identify. Everyone's here. When they're like, oh, there's other fish in the sea, that's where all the fish are. They're in New York City, right? So it's like everyone is fishing. Everyone's like catching one and being like, "Mm, I don't know about this one. Let me throw it back. Let me go to another fish. So like there's so many options here that it's really hard for anyone to kind of find someone to settle down with. So that's number one. And then number two, dating as a gay person is hard because as a gay man, I'll I'll say dating as a gay man is hard because I don't know if you want to call it nature or nurture or what, but we're just like out and about and we're doing our thing and we date around and we play around and that leads to not wanting to settle down, right? And I think part of that is we're not under any pressure to start a family or have kids. That like lack of a timeline, so to speak, makes it hard for gay men. And then you add the layer of being Asian. And in gay culture, there's almost like a the ideal man or like the uh, the Adonis and let's call it a hierarchy, if you will, of hotness. And there's some hot Asians, but like the real tea is like, we're not up there on the scale, you know, we're not up there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so who, who is up there, Gina? Who is at the very top of this hierarchy? So yeah, what's the hierarchy? The hierarchy is like white men with perf chiseled bodies, white men, and then followed by like white men with like, okay, bodies. And then, then <laughs> and then after that, it's like Latino men. Black men, maybe other, 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 and then like Asian men. Um, oh no! And this is this is the part right where it's like when I share the story, I get the those reactions where it's like, oh no, like that sucks, or like that's not true. Um, and yeah, it does suck, right? But that's the reality of just like how things are, and and I think so many things contribute to that, which is uh, a lot of it is like media representation and like portrayal of of Asian men in media. And so, you know, basically the point that I'm trying to make here is Asian men, we're not top of mind for people. We're not necessarily sought after. And I'm almost like conditioned to not have anyone like interested in me that when someone does, it's almost like a, 
Mm, red flag are you like fetishizing me like are you into like a, a sub meek asian you have yellow fever like what's going on and i think what happens too is then we become um conditioned to this way of thinking right like i will be the first to admit that i have zero confidence when i am out at the bars or whatever and i see someone that i like immediately i'm like oh, why would I even bother approaching that person? And, you know, it's just like a cycle. Exactly. It's like because you don't try, then it doesn't happen. And then you're like, it reaffirms. And then it just, exactly, yeah. exactly to your point about the cycle. Just to add to it too. So for example, like in gay world, we use Grindr, which is a hookup app. And you'll see guys with profiles on there saying like, no fats, no femmes, no Asians. And I chose this to wear the shirt on purpose today, which it's a shirt that says fat, femme, Asian. And it, I wore this like a few prides ago. And I, I made it myself. And it was like my way of reclaiming that. Because you could be the most confident person, but the more that you see things like that, like those things compound, right? And they add up and they affect the way that you see yourself and the way that you see others who are like you, right? There, you know, there's another conversation about Asian guys who are not into fellow Asian men and who really do only want to be with white men. Is that in response to some internalized uh, racism or you know, sexual racism against oneself? Maybe, I don't know. When I think about Asian bodies, mm-hmm. When it comes to like romance and dating and sexuality, I think a lot of Asians get fetishized. There are certain assumptions or preconceived notions that people attach to Asian bodies. And particularly being an Asian woman, I've experienced it firsthand. What's really fascinating to me is guys who approach me will even say as though it's a compliment to me, like, oh, I love Asians. And I'm like, you know, maybe you should have hidden that until like the second or third date because now you have zero shot. And it sounds like you have experienced a little bit of that similar kind of fetishization, but it's different because you're a man. Yeah. So what do you think those differences are? Like from your perspective, and you don't, obviously this is not you speaking on behalf of all Asian gay men, but like, why do you think female bodies are treated so differently than Asian male bodies? Yeah. The commonality, right, of how people see us is this idea that we are, you know, docile, meek, submissive. I think men fetishize women in with that mindset because, yeah, I want to be like the alpha male, like I got this as my girl, whatever, and it's like, let me do whatever I want with her and she'll just kind of, yes, sir, whatever you like, like massage parlor, like that kind of whole idea. Guys get off on that control and that dominance, right? And I think that's what plays into that. And I think it's the same thing with gay men to a certain extent. I think maybe gay men who fetishize gay Asian men, there is some stuff that those guys need to unpack, right? And this is me making some assumptions, that deep in the layers, there's probably some internalized homophobia to a certain extent because they really, they 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 want to be that dominant guy. They want to be the they want to be the guy. Yeah, uh, they're, they're, there's still that like masculinity gender thing at play. As you're describing the the gay man at the top of the hierarchy, mm-hmm. it's not too dissimilar from what a straight guy at the top of the hierarchy is. Mm-hmm right? Which is white, muscular, sporty. 
And I, I guess I would have thought that in the gay community, like who sat at the top would have been different than who sits at the top of the straight community, but it's the same. It's yeah. the same thing. Like what? Yeah. I say in just that Asians are at the bottom of the hierarchy and it's almost like you have to be an eight in order to not be at the bottom as an Asian gay man, you need to look right. Like you need to have the body. You need to have running in the right social circles. Yeah, you're Asian, but like you're not like those other Asians. You know, it's like that kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. And I think what you were saying, Terry, about how you're surprised that it's the same in both communities. I think at the end of the day, it's kind of like gay men are attracted to men. Right. And so when you think about what is a man, what is the attractive man? It's what we have all been conditioned to think is the attractive man. So in some ways, it's almost not surprising because we all have the same idea of what beauty is, because that's what we've been told. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, But to your point about having to be like perfect Mm -hmm. just to be mediocre (laughs) you know it's like weird it's it because it reminds me of we had a conversation with a friend of ours who runs an asian restaurant and he was just like we have to work x percent harder just to do the same as somebody who can just make that baseline success you know without having to like come up with interesting new recipes or you know they can sell the burger and make the margin and they're having to like combat the fact that, yeah, the stereotype is that Asian food is cheap, you know? And so now they have to elevate it that much higher. And so not to say that, you know, not to say people are food, but. No, it's very, it's very related. I think the privilege of mediocrity is something that Asian people are not afforded. What we're talking about here is just the privilege of being seen, the privilege of being, of just being. And I think of how there are some Asian people who love to pretend they're white, who love and try really hard to to not be like those other Asians, right? It's like they are all about being adjacent to whiteness, knowing that they will never actually be at the level of whiteness that they crave. And I think it's the same Mm -hmm. thing for the, the gay Asian men. It's like they are trying really hard And I'll put myself in that category. It's like, I know what I'm doing when I try to work out. I'd like to sit here and think, I want to like do this for me and it's for my own well-being, but I'm trying to catch that fish or like have someone catch me, right? It's like, you have to look around you and see like, all right, who's successful? What does success look like? And how do I align with that? And that is through trying to adopt the things that those people have done to be successful or just hang around with them long enough. And I think among Asians, in in all of our struggles, we are just trying to, we're just trying to catch up. And what you are actually reminding me of is the fact that our parents' generation and the generations before us actually worked so hard to not be seen, Mm. almost. And so I feel like that's a new concept for us. We almost can't be surprised that nobody is noticing us as a unique individual with something to bring. Well, it's it's actually revealing to myself where I'm like, yeah, we're having to undo a lot of this like 
just blend in. Yeah. You know, it'll be you'll you'll be liked if you blend in. Yeah. And it's like, no, you'll probably just be ignored. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you mentioned <laughs> our parents' generation, and I would, you know, my, my parents are um, immigrants. And I don't know if your parents are as well or, uh, but um, I, yep. I think so. So yes. Right. And yes, the, the MO of our parents is we move to this country and we are going to not rock the boat. We're going to sit down, shut up and do our work and just not try to be noticed. And now you have us, they're the generation of kids who are American, who, you know, are, are Asian as well. But now that's like us reconciling our Asianness and our Americanness, where we're like, hey, we want to stand out. We want to do our own thing. And we live in a world or a society that still sees us the way that people saw our parents and that our parents see themselves. How do Asian Americans navigate a world that does not see them as American? And in many ways, American is synonymous with white and how do we show up in that world in a way that honors who we are, where we feel like we have self-worth and self-value and don't feel less than because it's very easy to feel that way. But so fascinating because now there's this whole generation, us, who are basically saying it's not okay that we've been treated this way. So this leads me to my question, which is, what do you think are our responsibilities as Asian Americans? What do you think that we should be doing to advance the cause? I think things like this, what you're doing, honestly, and I'm not even just saying that because it's it's you too and we're here on your podcast. But for, for me, like my superpower or what I have at my disposal is my ability to build connections with people and be a facilitator. And I, I think that is important because more than ever, our people need community. We've talked so much about wanting to stand out and be different from everyone else. But in some ways, and we've also talked about our parents like being collectivists. Maybe we do need to like borrow some of that mentality and stand strong together as a community. And I also think that building community across all Asianness, I think it's very easy for us to be siloed. When you hear things about other Asians, it's almost like, yeah, you tolerate that or you let it, or sometimes you contribute to that because there is a lack there of community and collectivism. And so I think the biggest thing that we can do is to find ways to, in however way we can in our own, you know, find our own platforms to build community with and among each other. I used to host these like gay networking brunches. You know, yeah, that's cool. But everyone, whatever your job is or your careers or your life circumstances is like you have the ability to make connections with people. You just have to find out what that is.
Right. And, and selfishly, it's, it's also for yourself, right? Like you find people that are like you and to help you reinforce like those things that maybe you're hiding in your everyday life. Or, you know, I, I, I definitely feel like prior to this podcast, I don't think I've ever talked about my identity like in such a concentrated setting. And it's really like we've had revelations. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've had a revelation on this episode. For sure. Too. I, mm-hmm. You know, it's funny how you mentioned it building community can be helpful for yourself as well i think that's true because we as asian americans you probably just like hang out with your same ethnic group but i think for the most part if you're not with that same asian group you are probably the token asian in a group now you're in this echo chamber of whiteness and anti-asianness i'm not saying those are one and the same but you kind of have to do a lot of code switching and lose yourself a little bit. And you get the privilege of like not facing your own shit. And when you are in community Mm -hmm. with other Asian Americans, you are sharing lived experiences. And now you can't run away from that shit. There is a lot of realization and healing that comes from coming back to a community And if you don't have that community, then like, that's it. Like, go find it or go build it. I did want to ask, what is code switching? (laughs) Sure. I'm sure there's like a better academic way to describe it. But it's kind of like your white voice. When you turn on that Mm. white voice, or you kind of like change it up a little bit to match the crowd that you're with. And that is driven by the idea to feel safe and accepted, right? In the context of being like a token Asian in a group of, let's say, predominantly like in a white group, because maybe you're not talking about your mom's cooking or whatever, and you're talking about how much you love like white claw and like all this other stuff, you know? Avocados, yeah, but like, I do love avocados. Like vary that, right? So it's basically just switching it up so you fit in. And sometimes that's a very real thing that you need to do to just be safe and survive. But that really takes a lot of mental gymnastics and emotional labor to code switch. I liken it to people who are queer before coming out. It's like, let me not cross my legs. Let me fix my walk a little bit. That's code switching to a certain extent. Thank you so much for sharing and for educating us. This was incredible. Thank you for for providing the platform and thank you for acknowledging Pride Month in this way. I mentioned using platforms and this, you know, this is what you're doing. You're using platforms to, and it's maybe a community that you are around, but we can always learn more or, you know, be exposed to more. And I'm happy to, I'm honored to have been that for you today and for your listeners and the, the, the conversation continues and I, um, I'm just so thankful and it's really nice to meet you both. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gino. Thank you for listening. This is really meant to be a conversation and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello at unmodelingminorities.com. Unmodeling Minorities will be released every Thursday. Hope you join us next time.